this is Catherine. Welcome to Friendly Anarchism. Can you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Jessica Hubbard-Bailey. I am the host of the Young Quaker podcast, which is a podcast about young Quakers in the UK and um, general Quaker person. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you on. It's fun to meet another Quaker podcaster. It's sort of a niche yeah. market, isn't it? Yeah, it's great. It's really niche, actually. <laughs> <laughs> have you had any problems like gaining any listenership or... Um, we're still a little podcast at the moment. We're kind of a, a baby podcast, but mm-hmm. um, I'm really happy with how it's grown. It's grown quite organically, um, and especially because a lot of the things that we're talking about are maybe more geared towards British Quakers. I've mm-hmm. been really pleasantly surprised how many downloads we've had. We've just hit our 1,000 downloads mark, and oh, that was really exciting. congratulations. That's great. Um, and our fifth episode's coming out soon. So, uh, yeah, it's really exciting. And I, my favorite thing about it has just been meeting other people, getting to talk to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, I've been doing this podcast for just shy of a year now. And I think I just passed 16,000 downloads. And that was really, wow, that was really exciting. Amazing. Yeah, and it's, it was been, it's been growing really slowly, but pretty steadily. And so that's really exciting. Very exciting. Yeah, I'm super excited to meet another podcaster, especially a Quaker podcaster. Like I said, it's pretty niche, but I've been really happily surprised with sort of, I've been reaching, I think, a pretty broad audience, especially a lot of anarchists, because I do a lot of anarchist content. In fact, actually, I do mostly more anarchist content, and I've been slower about learning about Quakerism because I'm a convinced friend. I've only been a Quaker for less than two years at this point, so I know much more about anarchism than I do about being a Quaker. So were you a convinced friend or be raised raised in a Quaker church or meeting? So no, I'm, I, I'm not a kind of, I'm a convinced friend basically. I was raised by kind of atheist parents, mm-hmm. um, but I, I'm hoping that you guys can, you can teach me some more about anarchism because I think I, I feel like I know more about Quakerism <laughs> than anarchism, even though I guess my parents especially one of them. So I was raised by lesbians, um, very lefty households, kind of frequently on marches from the age of zero. You know, I think um, they were kind of really keen to give us that kind of um, social justice kind of upbringing to kind of really instill in us how important it was to fight for people who weren't as privileged as we were. Um, And also to fight for ourselves because sometimes we're those unprivileged people and it's really important to kind of um, I guess value yourself in that way um, and I think they were surprised when I started becoming more kind of spiritual because for them um, the church as a kind of institution was such a, a such an oppressive force for them um, particularly one of my mothers she was the daughter of a bishop um, and he was a super big deal and uh, I think really struggled that two out of his four kids turned out to be gay, which was, you know, maybe a little calmer there from God, but <laughs> in my mind anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, yeah, she, she kind of, she struggled slightly to begin with, um, with me kind of finding faith just because to her, it was one of these incredibly oppressive institutions. Um, But I think Quakerism was actually, it was a more palatable way to be religious than uh, um, for her. So it's like you said, with 
um, being able to British friends don't actually believe in God and things like that so it's really it's quite a kind of um, it's maybe perhaps more spiritual and mystic than um, religious in the kind of conventional sense quite a lot of the time and um, it's able to appeal to a broader range of people for that reason I think partly because um, you know no one tells you what to believe um, and I think that's Part, part of the reason, part of the thing that really attracted me to it in the first place. Um, but yeah, I think it's interesting because I think sometimes I struggle with the more traditional language just because that was the language of my mom's oppressors. And um, yeah, it's been an interesting kind of uh, foray, I guess, <laughs> into Quakerism. Uh, but I've, what I've found is actually another family um, and that's been so valuable and so amazing, especially the young Quaker community. I feel like they've really um, rallied around each other to support each other um, in recent years and really kind of wanting to make change and do exciting things and, um, and change things, not just in the world, but within Quakerism, like you were saying before, um, you know, you need to be constantly learning and constantly changing things I think um, to make progress and to move forward and to kind of move with you know what we need to be doing at the time um, that we're living in um, in a way yeah mm -hmm. yeah I think there is a little bit of a more radical spiritual revival happening right now that we're probably a part of I think throughout history there have been these sort of radical revival and up uprisings sort of sort of in you know more than occasionally, <laughs> but it's just oh, rat, um, regularly. That's the word I was looking for. So right, um, it's it's pretty kind of fun to be a part of that because I'm seeing it sort of popping up a lot of places, and I'm seeing a lot of interest from people that probably would never have thought that they would be interested, just like me, you know. Because I also grew up in an atheist household, who my mm. parents had had a really hard time in the church themselves. You know, my dad actually got right. kicked out of his house when he was 16 because their, their um, bishop had told them that he had questioned whether or not God existed and his parents were really worried and went to the bishop and the bishop said, well, he's going to taint your household basically and kicked him out. So it was, it was, he's been amazingly supportive though. I'm really lucky, but it's definitely been hard. It's definitely been a trip, um, especially sort of in the leftist community. There is a lot of pain surrounding, um, surrounding Christianity specifically. Um, because yeah. it has been so, I would say, taken over, co-opted by this really, really, um, conservative and oppressive way of looking at the Bible and biblical teachings. Um, um, we talked, I talked a little bit about this on the podcast that's about to come out, about um, this idea of canon Jesus and fanon Jesus. And the idea that canon Jesus is this radical socialist, like far left guy who is tearing down barriers and so anti-capitalist and anti-state and anti-imperialist and all of those awesome things. And then fanon Jesus is this weird co-opted white Jesus who, you know, somehow is white, which I really don't get, um, <laughs> and who seems to stand for, you know, 
the right to bear arms and um, the right to tell people, no, you shouldn't have sex with that sort of a person or, you know. Or at all. Just, yeah, exactly. Like, so I think there's, I think you're right that we are part of this new radical movement to kind of take back canon Jesus slightly Mm -hmm. and to kind of reclaim him and be like, no, you know, this is what he stood for. Mm -hmm. Um, And he would not be sitting here and voting Donald Trump into the House and Senate, you know, like that would not be happening. Um, It's, I mean, it's scary in Mm -hmm. some ways that it's kind of gone this far. Like it's had to take this, um, this much of an extreme political divide for a kind of I'm not sure whether to call it an uprising because an uprising kind of sounds like a revolution but I guess I mean a kind of this huge wave of response that I Mm -hmm. think we're seeing all around the world um, of especially young people but I guess left-wing more radical people in general um, standing up and saying you know no enough's enough this is this isn't right and not in our name, not in our country's mm-hmm. name, mm-hmm. not in Jesus's name, mm-hmm. <laughs> is this happening, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I just read a really interesting article about the roots of this super oppressive, racist religiosity in America and how there was a very loving Jesus, very accepting Jesus, you know, and then um, it got tied in, the church kind of took over what, or was led by wealthy landowners and slave owners and it turned into this thing where like if you were a radical person of faith and you were speaking up against slavery then you would be like killed or run out of town basically and like that's how they kind of created this like hegemony of protecting slavery by dampening and shutting down radical people of faith and that sort of continued on through the centuries until we are here now where there still is this like very, very strong current of deep racism, even fascism within a lot of these white evangelical churches, you know? So the roots of this is, I found that a really fascinating article. And it was actually, it was interesting because it was originally published in Forbes and then got taken down. So yeah, Forbes took it down and like the editor wrote this little Thing about it being like this is not representative it's painting with a wide brush blah blah blah, blah. it was like a very well-researched article yeah isn't that interesting yeah that is so interesting and yeah to be published in such a kind of like wide-reaching magazine like Forbes which is I guess fairly mainstream even it sends a real message that such a kind of mainstream publication like Forbes would post something like that or publish something like that and then redact it Mm-hmm. that's almost more strong than not publishing anything like that in the first place mm-hmm. um gosh yeah that sounds super interesting will you send me the link of course i'll put it in the notes i always put anything i reference into the notes for the episode oh. i'd be super interested to read that i think mm-hmm. it sounds really and because it was yeah. taken down it's now republished on like the author's personal blog with the note from the editor when he when he wrote the editor thing oh. why did you take this down so that's it's a really cool yeah it was fun it is really cool. Yeah. Um, how did you get pulled into Quakerism? Um, I think I have maybe always felt spiritual, but never really known what it was. Um, I kind of, I guess I was spiritual in a kind of hippie way. Like <laughs> when you go 
to the ocean and you look at the ocean and you're like, oh my God, this is so sublime and surreal. And I'm having this like bodily experience looking at this vast, vast thing that I can't even comprehend. Um, and I guess that for me is religious now. I would be able to kind of mark that as a kind of religious experience. But at the time I just thought I'm a bit of a weirdo. Um, and I guess as I got older, I founded that found that I wanted to explore that more and possibly I think this is really cringy but falling in love maybe brought me to God a little more as well um I met my husband uh six years ago now um or five years ago we got together and um it was like seeing everything that could be good in the world and it really changed me as a person I think because I was going through a really tough time um my kind of early 20s and late teens I, my mental health was really poor and I'd had a lot of trauma in my life and falling in love was like this new birth for me um where I could kind of move past a lot of what had happened and process it and also start to love myself and it was through loving myself that I began loving God um and that, that sounds really cringy but um I think it's true and I think um he he felt the same um and we both were like you know what like we'd really like to find a home a kind of spiritual home and put this somewhere and do something with this and hopefully make something good out of it so we went, I think both of us had heard of the Quakers. Um, my granny on one of my uh, mum's side was a, a Quaker for a little bit um, because she was really, uh, she was super involved in like anti-apartheid stuff when she was growing up and loads of amnesty things. And she was like a big campaigner. And I think it really appealed to her kind of activist nature um, doing the Quaker thing. So I'd heard of Quakers that way. Um, and I was like, you know what, my granny's a cool lady. Like, she would, <laughs> she would go to a cool church. Like, <laughs> yes. um, and we just went to our first meeting and kind of was like, yeah, we're home, you know? Mm -hmm. This feels like mm -hmm. home. Mm -hmm. um, and although I think Quakerism as an institution has a lot of things to learn and, you know, uh, a, a way to go um, in terms of inclusivity and representation and stuff like that, I think out of all the spiritual homes that we could have made for ourselves it feels like the right one you know um it's given me so much I think and um also the world feels really scary sometimes and having somewhere like that um like meeting for worship where you can go and be quiet for an hour a week it's very healing for me um and I think I really appreciate that um in a big way mm -hmm. how did you come to be a friend I found the Quakers via a Quaker meeting house when I was in at the, I went to the Democratic National Convention back, oh, back in the day before I started to really re-radicalize, because it was pretty radical back in my teens, and then I had just sort of like, you know, going to the university and just sort of like working more in electoral politics, I helped with the Obama campaign, and then I like helped with the Bernie campaign, and then got more sort of re-radicalized, I was still, I was still anarchist but felt like I could work sort of within possibly which I now think is just very funny 
Um, <laughs> but so when I was at when I was in Philadelphia, the two really sort of outside the DNC radical things I went to, which was the People's Convention and which was the Socialist Convergence, were both held in Quaker meeting houses. And I remember walking into a Quaker meeting house and being like, this is such a still, calm, simple, beautiful space. I feel better just being in this space. And meeting some Quakers while I was there, and I was like, wow, these are also still, calm, beautiful people. And I was having like major anxiety problems, which I'm not totally over or anything, but um, it, was, it was like, whatever they've got going on, like, I want a piece of that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I was like, well, I'm going to check it out. Like, I never thought about going to a church. That seems kind of strange for me, but um, I did have sort of spiritual feelings when I was younger. You know, I'd gone to church with some friends and sort of like kind of enjoyed it, but felt bad about it, <laughs> like, you know, because of the atheist upbringing. It's like, I shouldn't be liking this. It's weird. I don't know. There's all of these reasons that this is an oppressive, horrible structure I can't engage in. And um, But then I went to a meeting, and I had... I guess you call it a religious experience. Like, you know, all those, like, God feelings. It was, like, incredibly transformative for me, this first meeting. Um, it had been silent the whole time, and I was like, I didn't really know what was going on. <laughs> like, I had I'd done, like, a little bit of research, but, like, I didn't really understand what that meant, this sort of, like, silent corporeal worship, you know? And then one of the elders of the meeting stood up and gave... Uh, I'm like getting choked up. It was so powerful. Like gave a vocal ministry that felt directed right at me. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and it wasn't, you know, but he just talked about being um, in World War II and being at a time when the world felt like it was going to end and it was so scary and um, how, how spirituality and how the message of Jesus Christ kind of like helped him through that time and having the Quaker community. And um, there were some other just really poetic things that he said that really spoke to me. And I, I just like, I basically had a breakdown. I'd been like holding all this stuff in and I just started like sobbing and meeting. I'm just, I'm an openly emotional person in general. I, which I, one of the reasons I really enjoy being a Quaker is because it's been very, very helpful for me to sort of help regulate my emotions <clears throat> and like regulate how I, um, how I interact with the world, and I'm, I have a lot of, I have, I have a far way to go still, but I'm a much calmer, like, more loving, kind person, having, ha doing all of this weekly and sort of daily practice now in, like, learning how to keep perspective by refocusing on God and learning how to stay in a place of being loving and being kind and being humble and those, you know, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And like that message has been so powerful in my life and like remaining, you know, in like how activists talk about like leading with love is very important. And it feels like that has been incredibly important in keeping me able to stay forward and move forward. And like it's coming to a place where I realized that places where I had decided and like actively worked to lead with love in the past, even like over a year ago, or no coming to fruition here. Like every time you lead with love, you're planting a seed that will um, grow into something, even if you have no idea when, even if it's years and years later. So um, it's just, it's been wonderful for me. And But it's so interesting to hear you talking about it earlier. And I can hear that you're sort of like uncomfortable and like bashful and like have a hard time saying like, 
Christ Jesus. And <laughs> like, you know, like, I, cause I feel the same way. Cause it's so weird because I, it, I still have a very hard time talking about being Christian. And like, I think one of the reasons that my podcast has skewed very heavily anarchist a lot of the time is because there's just not as much interest in being in the, the message of Christ on, on the left. And there's not as much, um, and it's, there's a lot of hostility, open hostility. I get attacked basically daily on my Facebook page by anarchists. Like I'll get a fascist like once or twice a week, you know, but like I'm, I get, I get beat on almost daily by anarchists yeah. about, about what, if I ever post God stuff, you know? So it's like some days I'm not really posting any, any kind of God stuff, but, um, I've also, I have to say though, I've also been very happy to also have been finding a lot more support than I might've expected as well. Cause the hostility is forefront. You know, like the hostility is a stronger voice than the people who have been coming out of the woodwork to show me a lot of support and love. So like, um, I just posted a picture I took of myself where I was reading a little book called that says on the cover, it says, um, keep calm and trust God. And the comments kind of like went nuts. And there were a lot of people being like, it's a great photo, but like, don't give me that God crap, blah, blah, blah. But then there were a lot of people who came in on my defense too, which was like really lovely and heartening to see. So, um, it's, it's just, it's just like really wonderful to feel like I have a connection with you and that same kind of, we're kind of living in this bizarre place. that's sort of really uncomfortable in our current society, trying to balance that like radicalism with this like weird co-optive Christianity thing. Yeah. I mean, I think it is hard because I think actually a lot of those people who are going to be resistant to religious ideas and religious thinking are people who have been hurt by religion um, or, you know, people's co-opted version of that religion um and i i can really understand that and i can kind of sympathize that actually you know organized religion in general possibly has been more of a force for bad than good without the entire you know throughout the entire history of the world but i think as well i have such a strong kind of <laughs> i guess feeling in my heart um that kind of overrides my kind of like logical brain that says you know oh you know christians hate gay people or christians think this and and that that kind of says no like this is this is your home and this oh sorry that says i have a strong home. feeling in my heart that this is my home and this is you know my spiritual uh place of kind of nourishment and stuff and uh yeah it is a little embarrassing sometimes if non-religious mums and uh friends and stuff because you know they don't get it in the same way um yeah and and I, I have to respect that as well because I think for them it's something painful um but I I, I kind of wish I could like tell everyone about canon Jesus sometimes yeah. and be like no he's not like that I swear like you know you could be religious and cool and you know I have um, a, I have a meme to send you <laughs> about this, exactly about that I don't know if you seen have you seen the meme with the kid with the trumpet like following the girl with her hands on her ears okay it's like it's like one of those memes that has been going around people change the wording and it, yeah, yeah, it just yeah. says like me meeting somebody new like I'm not that kind of Christian. I'm, I'm you know. I actually, you know, I'm like I, I wear a cross, but I wear it under my shirt. So right. I mean, yeah. and it's well, I mean, and that's fine because it's for me. You know, it's not, it's not trying to like proclaim 
anything for other people. But yeah. Um, and it's not even like I want to convert anyone or anything weird like that. Like, I just want to be like, oh, there are like spiritual people out there who support you and love you and want to fight your battles too. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I mean, that's kind of what exactly what we're doing though, isn't it? It's like that, that desire to sort of just explain who we are and kind of where we're coming from. We're both podcasters, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Which I think is a really nice way to do it. Cause I don't feel like it's evangelizing, you know? It's right. I just like because I don't want to evangelize. I'm not saying this is the path for everybody, but I do want to carve out space for where I'm at. You know, because there isn't a lot of space for that, and I've no and like there's other people who feel the same way. So it's felt like there's a need, and I, I think there is a need. You know, we don't want to like anarchists and leftists in general don't want to talk about it necessarily in spiritual terms, but there is sort of like a gap. There's sort of a deep pain that a lot of people are feeling that I think could be alleviated by a spiritual practice, even if it's, if it's not, it doesn't matter if it's like institutionally religious or anything like that, but some kind of deeper, deeper faith in something larger, I think would, has been so grounding for me. And like, I, it's, it's the thing, it's like, I understand why people want to evangelize. Cause it's like, I see that you're in pain and I know how I could maybe help, but you don't, you know what I mean? So it's like, I don't want to evangelize, but I also just want to like, be like this is a thing you might want to think about because it's been incredibly great and you, you know you look at other people doing social justice work I, you know I think I look at like communities of color specifically too doing social justice work where there's like a deep tradition of this like spiritual grounding in the work they do and it's like yeah. these are people working under really severe oppressive conditions you know look at the slaves and look at Sojourner Truth um, who, who, uh. you know, and they, they found their spiritual grounding and often specifically Christian grounding to be incredibly not necessary to be able to do that work, you know? So I think it's, it's a shame that the radical left has sort of excised that in general, you know? Oh, I think I, I really agree. And I think, um, especially for young people as well. And I think it's maybe slightly different in Britain to the States, but I mean, correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong. Um, but I feel like there's more of a kind of cultural heritage of, uh, spirituality in the States being just more of a kind of, just more of a thing. Like I feel like in Britain, you are definitely in the minority if you go to any kind of church or temple or mosque or whatever. Um, and it's more of a kind of, it's definitely a kind of older older person thing. You know, you, do, you don't have the same kind of big charismatic evangelical churches here in the same way. I mean, obviously they do exist, but um, they are smaller. You don't have those kind of big super churches in the South and, um, you know, all of that. And it's quite a kind of um, isolated community now, I would say, in terms of, um, and I think that's partly partly a chosen thing, um, that lots of those communities have chosen to, to kind of stay within those religious groups, and that's their community, you know, and they don't kind of venture out into um, other kind of other groups, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, but in Britain, it still very much feels like, I, I guess maybe this is a new thing because actually probably a few years ago, everyone would have been a Christian. Um, but it, yeah, it still feels like you're this tiny little island of people. Mm -hmm. um, and like when I talk about the podcast being a baby, I think, um, you know, we have like 200 listeners per episode or something like that. And um, it it's probably all of the young Quakers in Britain. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? 
Mm-hmm. We're so small. Um, but I'm really happy that I think Quakers in particular have been able to make links and relationships and connections with uh, people, groups like anarchists, groups like activists in general, um, and to kind of have that melding of spiritual and political. I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really good that um, we can have both and that people can be either or or both. I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do believe in, you know, that idea of the separation of church and state and all of that. Um, although, you know, possibly we shouldn't have the state at all. <laughs> but um, uh, it's, I think there's something to be said for um, being around people who are not like you, being around people with diversity of ideas, being around people with diversity of spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk about this a, a lot in terms of the podcast. I love that some people, some Quakers are super Christian and love Jesus and, you know, pray to God in a very traditional sense and all of that. And I love that some Quakers are like, mm, I experience God as more of a force maybe or like a wind going through the trees. Or so, Do you know what I mean? Like, I love that we have such different mm-hmm. yeah. uh, ideas, experiences spiritually. I think that's so powerful. I think diversity is something that can only make us stronger. It mm-hmm. can only make us uh, more... Um, it can only make us question our own beliefs and either get stronger in them or change them uh-huh. to make them better. Uh-huh. I, I don't think there's any kind of weakness in in difference ever. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, so, it's true. I think that I think that anarchist monoculture against spirituality is very damaging. Any kind of monoculture is bad. It means it's like um, carving out space for people who are spiritual is like that's most of the world. You know, like isn't it's like it's like I think it's more than 90% of people on this planet have, are, like, consider themselves a person of faith. You know what I mean? So it's like, we're already a small group. We want to be, like, even, even smaller, you know? <laughs> like, right, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's like, I, we look at sort of affinity groups, and um, I let you know about affinity groups, sort of how affinity group organizing works. So an, yeah, an affinity sense. group is that a small group of people can make a lot of change, and they come together around an affinity, so something that everybody wants to do, a, a type of work or a type of goal that people have to work together on. And you work, a, a, affinity groups can be anywhere from two to like 16 people. I think eight, I, in, my, in my experience, about eight people is ideal. Jesus's affinity group was 13, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? So, um, which is like another like totally great size for an affinity group. And, um, <laughs> So affinity group organizing creates these like really intimate little groups that can learn to be, that can like really know each other and work and and be able to be very flexible with how they do things because it's a smaller group and it's a lot easier to get consensus if you're working within a small group kind of, that kind of stuff, right? So, um, I forgot where I was going with this. (laughs) Where did I start this? Oh, um, um, we were talking about like how monoculture is bad. Oh, and yeah, 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 monoculture. Yeah. Oh, okay, so yeah, so, and you look at affinity groups in art and in in sort of storytelling. You've got like Robin Hood had the little affinity group, right? You talk about like any right? sci-fi. There's gonna be like a little affinity group that's on a ship, 
you know, or like it's like, and, and these are all examples of like little affinity groups, and they almost always have a spiritual person. You know what I mean? There's always there's always somebody because there's a role that needs to be played by a person of faith who does, um, you know, who does the death rituals and who does the marriages and who does the sort of like even like prayer, like leading people in prayer, like like getting people sort of like to calm down and like be together in a space before something, a big action before something happens, you know? Like I think there's a, there's a, for, for guidance, you know? Like you talk about um, uh, pastoral faith and people need, uh, I think generally speaking, a person in the church has been historically a therapist, right? So it's like, there's a lot of roles that a person of faith have sort of like historically and within our arts played that's been very important to the functioning of these affinity groups. And I think there's, you know, there's a reason for that, you know? So I think it's something that anarchists and other leftist groups should consider is that having somebody of faith in your affinity group could be very healthy. You know what I mean? And they bring a different kind of strength. They bring a different vibe, just like everyone brings something to the table. Um, and actually spirituality and religion can bring a lot of, like you were saying, grounding, strength, calm, um, kind of collectiveness. Um, it, I think a lot of um, what makes religion so grounding is that you do things as a community, you know, you have, and obviously that's, that's less common, it's less common in Quakerism because we don't have kind of sacraments and uh, rituals that we have to carry out in the same way, but we still come together to meet, you know, like even that language, meeting, mm -hmm. um, it's about mm -hmm. being together and mm -hmm. it's about communing um, and having a kind of covenant between you all in that moment. Um, it's about connection, I guess. And I think that people of faith really can bring that to, to groups. They can bring that sense of community and, communal being mm -hmm. um and yeah it's just I've, I've found it really helpful um and that it's really added something special to my life I guess yeah. um even if still I find it a little difficult and embarrassing sometimes I know to I, talk do too. About. I do too um th one of the Quaker things is inward state and outward action are component parts of a single whole that's a Howard Brinton quote it's one of my favorites um, and that the, you can't bring peace to the world until you bring peace to yourself. And sort of this, this focus on personal, individual inner peace as well. And that having an inner peace, just walking through the world in a peaceful state ripples out to help create peace in the world. And um, at first I thought that was very like, sort of like individualistic and sort of selfish. It's like you just focus on yourself all the time. Like how's that helpful? I've found that if I'm doing a good job at focusing on my spiritual practice and regaining connection to the source, then that it does help. Like it, uh, it becoming a, a person that is like calm in a space can be very helpful. Even, even just the act of being at peace yourself around when people aren't, are having a hard time finding that. And it's like, I have a hard time finding that, you know? So it seems like for me, it seems like, the more, the further I get into activism, the more it's like, wow, the idea that me working on my own inward state, my own peace, being central to my work is absolutely true and needs more specific attention. Like the further that I get into it, it's like, I need to be spending more time because if I'm going to be sort of 
uh, a source for calm, then I really do need to be able to continue to connect into that source. That's sort of what I call, I talk, I talk about God as so, as the source because I find them um, to be a, a a well of love that I can pull from to like fill my own spirit and like find my own light. And then I pull from that source, then try and like, and then hopefully like get it out to others. You know, sort of like a, a vessel of God's grace is even like it's sort of even old school language for what that is. Yeah, and I think as well, and I'm sure you've spoken about this before, that kind of like activist burnout thing that can happen. Oh yeah. Uh, and it's so easy to just run yourself dry, um, trying to desperately make a difference and you know organize things and go on marches and and that's actually emotionally so draining and so exhausting and you need to have that well to dip back into for yourself not just for other people um because how on earth are you going to make any kind of difference when yeah when you're just burning out so quickly mm-hmm. um i think it's just super important to have some kind of resource to feed yourself to nourish yourself um as well as because you can't do any good to your community or the people who you're fighting for if you're totally exhausted and emotionally exhausted i mean this world i feel like living in this world right now is emotionally exhausting yeah yep Um, just every day you wake up and it's like wow everything's super fucked (laughs) yeah right and you need something or I need something anyway yeah, yeah I think to yeah. just keep me grounded and keep me feeling okay and keep me kind of yeah feeling a little bit nourished I feel like we are plants living in this incredibly hostile terrain currently yeah. mm-hmm. and for me God is the rain that comes down and just keeps mm-hmm. me up going mm-hmm. the next few days the next few weeks mm-hmm. the next few months however long it takes Mm, for the draft to end you know Mm -hmm. I think it's really a shame that burnout has been really normalized I think in culture like oh yeah you're gonna burn out that's just how it is everybody burns out it's like it shouldn't be that way we should be working in a way that is sustaining and um in a way that is healthy and I think that it can be that way you know I think it really can be and I think we need to change the paradigm that being an activist means you're running yourself into the ground you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't think it needs to be that way. I think one of the nice things about being a Quaker is that it, sometimes you need to slow down to speed up. You know, like sometimes you have to take moments, you have to take time to stop, to just to stop, to sit in silence, to do nothing. And if you don't do that, it, you like that, that's work, that like the spiritual work, that the self-care work, that the doing absolutely nothing work of like being at peace in yourself is actually activist work you know it's not like a separate piece of it it's like that is part of being an activist and bringing peace to the world is in fact taking that time to do self-care to doing less i a friend of mine just went to a training from the uh, mutual aid disaster relief folks who are really cool um and one of the things they said is do less do better was one of their sort of maxims which I think is brilliant. Great. I've been, yeah, I've been thinking about that one a lot. Do less, do better. Because I definitely have been like, I'm going to be part of five collectives. That's fine. <laughs> like, no worries. You know, like at one point, like last summer, I was like, <laughs> I was the, uh, I, don't have to, I don't have to list all this shit. I was doing way too much. I was like way overdoing it. 
and um, I burned out. <laughs> and that is, and it, you know what, when, because when, here's the thing, is it's the same ripple effect. When, when you're at peace, it ripples out. When you are not at peace, it also ripples out. And there is like, you're, you know, it's not just an individualist damaging to yourself because we're living within communities, we're living within, we're working with other people. If you are burning out, you are damaging, you're actively damaging other people too. So I think for a lot of us who are really empathetic to think of it in those terms, it's like, it's not just about your own personal health. It's about the health of your community for you to be healthy and working from a place of like love and calm and humility, you know? Yeah, and I think it's so easy to, um, to actually put your mental health second when you're trying to, I guess, help other people's mental health or help other people's, you know, welfare, because it, it always seems more important. It always seems more important than how you feel on the day or how you've been feeling for months. And um, it, it's that thing that you said that, you know, that, that will affect other people as well. If you go to um, a march or something and you yourself are feeling incredibly emotionally vulnerable, incredibly anxious, paranoid whatever you are going to be bringing those vibes to that march and to and, and possibly you know endangering people mm -hmm. if you're feeling anxious and paranoid and upset um that could create kind of that kind of feeling and you know how that like riles police you know anxiety paranoia like yeah they will take any excuse yeah. to attack people and you you i feel like there should be a, more of a focus within activist spaces for um, mental health, looking after your mental health and keeping yourself safe and keeping other people safe, mm -hmm. keeping other activists safe and creating more of a kind of supportive community where it's not like who's done more than who to help these people or like I've been on how many marches, how many marches have you been on and, and that kind of thing yeah. and more about how can I support you yeah. um, mm -hmm. so that you can do as much as you can for the community or that kind of thing. Um, but it's hard, it's really hard. Um, and it's so easy to put your own emotional well-being last. Yeah, and I think this comes back around too, to staying humble and believing that lots of people have a lot to bring to the table and diversity is a good thing because that means bringing in more people. If you believe that diversity is a good thing, if you really believe um, that we, you know, stay humble, that we need help, that means widening out our reach to more community and bringing more people to the table. And that's also solving the problem of, could help solve the problem of burnout because more hands make light work, right? Which is another Quaker like thing to say, right? Right, um, yeah. Many hands make light work, is that the correct way of saying yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's another Quaker thing. It's like, that's true, but that means more vulnerability. That means meeting more people, you know, and so it's like, and that kind of affects just the basic paradigms of how we organize as anarchists because we are targeted by the state. So there is a level of security risk involved in everything that we do. You know what I mean? So it's like, how do you balance? So, I, so then you end up with people feeling like they have to do everything. And like driving ourselves into the ground because it's like, well, the work, there's so much work that needs to be done and we have to do it. You know, and it's like, well, we just stay humble because no, we don't have to do it. We can teach more people. We can spend more time with education. We can spend more time with training. We can spend more time 
with um, community outreach, you know, with recruitment. Like we need to be focusing on those things too, not just the work. Because again, that is the work. Spiritual inner health, community outreach, like training and education, those are all as equally important as actual work. Which is, you know, like, see, I even said that. You know, I just said actual work. You know what I mean? It's, like, it's just like, it's so embedded in our culture. It really is. And, and I wonder if that is part of a kind of capitalist ideology, ideology itself. That idea that, you know, um, the kind of hard, grueling, emotionally difficult labor is the actual work. And then the kind of education, the community care. I mean, that's kind of traditionally coded more feminine anyway, mm-hmm. whether that's like less valuable, less kind of, it, it's amazing how it kind of just seeps into everything, that idea about um, kind of masculine work and feminine work yeah. and how one thing is real work and another thing is not real. And part of it's not real because women have been working two jobs for thousands of years in that they've been doing the housework and bringing up the children and organizing the household and all of that and possibly a paying job as well um and they're not paid for one of those jobs you know uh so it's it's automatically it's not valued the same and Mm -hmm. those kinds of female dominated workforces like education healthcare, uh social care um they're automatically less valued because they're paid less you know that's our currency now um that's how what makes the world turn and all of that you know money is the most important thing in capitalism's eyes so if someone's paid less they're worth less yeah and And we're only worth our productivity you know right so it's like you are if our self-worth is coming from how much we're getting done that is inherently capitalistic you know what i mean Exactly. On the other hand, the world is like falling apart and there's a lot of work to do. So it's, it's hard to say like, I'm only, I need to take some time off when it's like, yeah, but if I take time off, I'm the person doing this important work. Like, and again, we're still using those, those ideas, take time off. Well, no, because actually that kind of emotional labor that you're doing for yourself, that's still labor. Mm. That's still work, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And we still think of it as indulgent somehow um and not productive mm-hmm. um I, I think it was really interesting so when I turned 19 I became disabled um and all of a sudden I was like oh my god um I I saw so I was raised in a fairly like leftist way learned to be kind of critical of people in power learned to be critical of you know follow the money all of that kind of stuff and um but being becoming disabled really made me look at capitalism in a totally different way because all of a sudden I was like, wow, um, I'm not, I'm too sick to work. I'm, I now no longer can, I can't contribute to the state. Um, I can't contribute to the economy. And therefore the thing that my entire value as a human being is based off of, um, I being a commodity to society, is nothing. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm less than nothing because I'm actually a burden on that society. I need healthcare. I need social yeah. care. I need, mm-hmm. um, you know, benefits. Um, that really shook me. I think to suddenly be part of a community that was so, I guess, hated um, in some ways by the state because yeah. you're this 
you're this burden. You're not only unproductive, you're like anti-productive because right. you're taking right. and you're not giving anything back, supposedly. Oh, I feel that so hard. You know, as someone who has struggled a lot with chronic mental illness, it can be very hard to hold down a job. Like at one point when I was, um, I was on lithium and the thing about lithium is you need weekly, you need, you need monthly blood draws, right? You have to get your, you have to get your lithium levels checked monthly because it can break down. It can, um, lithium can damage your kidneys pretty badly because it's a salt. So you have to have monthly blood draws also to tackle some mental health problems that are really serious, weekly therapy and then checking on your medicines and like getting your medicines right, uh, psychiatrist every two weeks. So look at what I'm talking about there. I'm talking about four plus two plus one, that's seven doctor's visits a month, right? And I'm talking about, when we're talking about um, trying to get a, trying to have like a shitty 40 hour a week job, and then you're working with st- within state benefit. You're working within a state structure where, like, I had to try and get all that done within normal work hours because that's when the doctors were open. Is you know the same time as I'm trying to work an office job. How do you ask for seven, seven times off in a month? You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Like it's that's it's, it, impossible. it's, it's impossible. You can't. It's, it, you can't. Right. Like you just totally can't. So um, it was incredible. It's like yeah, being being. Um, I never, I never like called myself disabled because I feel like not under capitalism, I would be functional, you know, like if I didn't have to have the stress of being, of having to conform to that work schedule because my other skills are not valued by capitalism and I'm an artist, right? So like it's, so I've, I've always kind of felt uncomfortable with the word disabled, but if you like look at my life and how it's like I was so severely affected with my ability to hold down a job or stay in school or have a relationship or whatever, all of these things, it's like, yeah, yeah, you know? And it's like, I have found um, that the church has been incredibly helpful to me sort of like being able to come to terms with that part of myself. Um, you know, something that bothers me about this, like, really heavy anti-Christian sentiment is the fact that there's something sort of inherently ableist in that for me. Because Jesus's, I, Jesus's message was one of not only accepting or, like, being tolerant of people with mental health problems and, like, people with, you know, physical disability or health problems, like, health, serious health issues. It was one of, like, rising them up. You know what I mean? Like, the person who baptized Jesus was a guy who ran around in a loincloth in the woods eating bugs and would come, into, would come into town just to, like, disrupt city council meetings to yell about trees. You know what I mean? Like, like that's, that's who John the Baptist was. And Jesus was like, this guy is the bomb. Like, he's awesome. And it's like, that is, like, such a powerful message. You know what I mean? And so, like, if you, if you look at, if you look at, so it's like, and that's one that I'm not getting from most of society. You know what I mean? It's like mental illness. It's like you're broken. You know what I mean? Right. Like there's something wrong yeah. with you. And like the church has said, no, like you, if you see things, if you hear voices, if you have a hard time, um, maybe you have a demon that can be excised. Maybe you're a prophet, you know, like maybe you have something very important to add to the world. 
you know, so it's like, that's an incredibly powerful message. It's, yeah, exactly. That's incredibly powerful. And like, there's nowhere in our society that like lifts up the differently able like that does. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think it's, I think that's such an interesting point actually, because I've never really thought of it that way. Um, but you're right. And I remember so distinctly, um, in my first Quaker meeting, um, we all sat around, we were all silent. I came out of this kind of spiritual experience and uh, everyone started kind of having tea and coffee. And one of the first things that someone turned to me and said was, oh, so, you know, you're new. Hi, what's your name? Um, what do you do? And that question, as I'm sure you'll know, you just dread it if you don't have a job. Right. <laughs> because you think, God, now I have to reveal this fact that I'm this horrible burden on all of you taxpayers or whatever. Um, and I said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm ill, I'm sick, I'm disabled, I'm not in work. And she just looked at me and she said, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Aww. And I was like, oh my God. I felt so affirmed. And it was, it was such a simple thing to say. But she just looked at me and she said, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Oh, I'm, I'm and... like, I'm tearing up right now because like I had such a powerful experience similarly in the Quakers because it's like, yeah, I was I was pretty out of whack when I found when I found Quakerdom and the people were so accepting. Because one of the things that people seem to want to do a lot is fix it. They want to f- help fix you. You know what I mean? And just say like, oh, you know, give advice or like, you know, I don't know, you know, whatever. But it's like Quakers, they just listened. They just like existed in space with me and like let me exist as who I was at that moment. And it was incredibly refreshing. Like people would just, you know, and just I was like, I've never had someone just sit, other than like a therapist, and like it was, and a therapist is being paid to be there, you know, <laughs> and so it's like just sort of like just uh, just sit and be with you and be like, yeah, that does suck. Mm, I don't know what to do. <laughs> I don't have any answers. You know what I mean? Like it's a seeking faith. It's like I don't know. I don't know. But it's not like I can't help you. I'm so desperate. I don't scared. I don't know how to fix you. I don't know how to fix it. It's just Quakers are like, yeah, I don't know. It sucks. I don't know. <laughs> it was like it was lovely. It was so great. I really, really love that. Yeah, Very and I lovely. think that is part of the kind of inherent kind of Quaker culture of listening rather than speaking. That thing that listening comes first, and um, actually none of us really know anything, so it, it helps sometimes to sit and to listen mm-hmm. and to take time to just be um and I think that I've, I've definitely I definitely kind of relate to your experience of just feeling held you know just feeling held in mm-hmm. the Quaker community and um people allowing me to be who I was without trying to say oh you know have you tried yoga or <laughs> um, <laughs> My friend's brother's dog's sister's aunt went on this special diet and then they were cured. And you're like, well, okay. <laughs> Eat more kale. You'll be fine. You just need right. some sunshine. It's like, yeah, sunshine doesn't, doesn't cure bipolar disorder. Thanks, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, right, right. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I love that um, language. I think the language we use is really telling and really important. Because if you say, like, I will pray for you, I mean, like, I'm going to ask a higher authority to fix you or fix, you know what I mean, and like, but like, I'm going to hold you in the light, that just means exactly what she says, I'm just going to hold you in a beautiful place, and like, be humble, and like, hope that, you know, and that's it, like, that no, no other anything else, it's just, I'm just going to hold you in the light, 
That's a that's a beautiful thing to say and to to feel that isn't there's no pressure there's no like there's no disappointment in that because if you pray and then nothing happens that's so sad but you can't be disappointed by somebody just wanting to hold you and love you and give you light I know you know what I mean yeah and it's so fundamentally loving I think it's so kind of you're right about the idea of like prayer sometimes being like I'm gonna fix you and you see this a little with um so Stephen Hawking's death recently and the coverage with that in terms of people have been like oh you know he's finally free of his wheelchair he can go to heaven and free of his disability and you're like oh fucking god (laughs) shut your face Shut your Twitter face. (laughs) (laughs) And also you just think like he doesn't need to be free of his wheelchair because wheelchairs are freeing. Wheelchairs are freedom. You know, as someone who is a wheelchair user, I can attest to the fact that my wheelchair gives me so much freedom. It, you know, it's opened so many doors. It, it kind of, and yeah, it stops me from doing stuff, but it's, that's not the wheelchair. That's the way that society is designed. You know, right, exactly, society- exactly. Like, and so I look at these, I look at these older societies and like Christian, um, Christian societies and how being differently, being mentally different you know, being, having that neurodiversity isn't seen as, it's just a different, you're just different, you know what I mean? Like, the, I, the whole idea of the holy fool, you know, the juniper and a St. Francis, who are just these, like, the idea of being simple, even being tied to, like, well, you're stupid, it's like, no, you're, like, simple, you're just, like, you're the Taoist carved block, you know, talking about people who are maybe on the autistic spectrum or something, it's like, you're not, there's nothing wrong with you, you're just a different type of person that has lots of different things to say, you know, like, so, like, um, I, I don't know, I should explain what I meant by Juniper. Juniper was a holy fool that lived with St. Francis of Assisi. And um, he, from the stories, I would assume that it sounds to me like he's probably somebody who was on that, on that what we call the autistic spectrum. He was just like, he, and it just, it was just incredibly honest and incredibly freeing. And he was a lovely, lovely, wonderful person. And they never talked to, you know, I mean, it's just like, it's just, and obviously this is not entirely true. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm pick, I'm cherry picking the parts that make me feel better than, because <laughs> there's obviously, there's obviously been horrible things done to people with disabilities and mental, mental differences throughout history. But I'm just comparing some of the stories that I've heard from those versus like where I'm living at right now, where like my life is like there, I can't let, I mean, I mean, there's not like a convent or something like maybe there is like just go and like, but without, without being like totally I don't know what I'm, I'm babbling. I just, <laughs> I don't know. You kind of see what I'm getting at though. Like there feels like there's a place for yeah. it in the church that there's not necessarily, especially under capitalism and the, the way that our state is structured. Yeah. And I think you're, you're definitely encouraged to, to feel if you have a disability, whether that's a kind of mental illness or not. And I, I think I would count mental illness as disability, especially if it's severe, especially if it impacts your life and impacts your job and your relationships and all of those other things um uh, it's you're just you're not seen as part of society you're seen as this drain um and what i really got a lot of kind of strength from was discovering about the social model of disability and i don't know if you use it in the states as much um but the social model says you know if you're disabled, 
or mentally ill i am disabled by my environment because it puts not because it was not appropriately designed to enable me to do things I rather like than that. no I haven't, I haven't really heard that i like that yeah so the medical model puts emphasis on the impairment uh, being the thing that stops you from doing things um and the social model says culture and the inaccessible environment is responsible for my inability to do things you know yeah. i can't climb up a flight of stairs but that's the stairs fault not mine you know? <laughs> it should be a fucking lift <laughs> or you can't hold down a 40-hour job maybe sometimes not because of your mental health it's because there's no job that allows you to do that and look after yourself right and that's like an empowering thing that's an empowering thing to to learn to put that responsibility back onto the environment to the state to the kind of the culture um that is the reason that stops us from doing stuff and because that's that's changeable without shame right you know we can change that yeah (sighs) i like that well we're at an hour is there anything else you'd like to talk about um no i think i think we covered quite a lot (laughs) yeah actually yeah perfect uh well thank you so much for being on it's been lovely to talk to you thank you for having me i really enjoyed it and scene okay cool yeah yay that was lovely i think that was a beautiful conversation i didn't even know that um i didn't even know that you were disabled that was such a lovely thing to talk about with somebody you know that was perfect yeah i mean i'm actually i'm pretty lucky that um my disability is mostly invisible until uh, you see a big wheelchair and then you're like, oh. <laughs> yeah, well, same. Um, I mean, mental health problems are invisible. So. Right, exactly, exactly. And, they're, I mean, <laughs> except they're not, but they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's, it's really similar, actually. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, it was really lovely to come on and talk to you. Um, I love the podcast so much. Thank you. And I, I really like want to. And I really want to, like, bring it to Britain like I feel like you know some of the Quakers here could do with some radicalizing and um, also just in general it's so great to make connections and yeah uh, people and stuff so it's really really great um and I really appreciate everything you do because I know that it's fucking hard work putting a podcast together oh my god wow yeah that's one of the things I was doing when I was talking about working too hard is I was doing this every week just by myself. And it's like, that's, and you're doing weekly, right? Or no, you're doing, I don't know. Um, no, but, no, 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 no. We just do it monthly. Um, it's enough work. Yeah. So I'm doing it every two weeks now. I, um, because I had that, men- I had a mental breakdown. I was like, maybe I should do this not every week. Because I was oh, also no. doing 5,000 other things. Terrible idea. Um, oh, so... I'm gonna actually. I got in, I got invited to do be on the interview with Sung with the Magnificast that we're recording tomorrow. So instead of this weekend, I'm gonna I'm gonna play this podcast episode in the two weeks later. So nice. So you've got something in the bank. That's really nice. Yeah, so I have something feeling. in the bank. Yeah, cool. And maybe because it was sort of a uh, we didn't talk about we didn't talk about um um like current events at all or anything. Then I might I might keep it in the bank for if I'm having a hard time and can't can't get it together some week you know no definitely absolutely like release it like use it as your like mental health week episode yeah. well that's perfect that <laughs> makes perfect sense yeah right okay. exactly all right 
Thank you, my dear. All right, well, uh... <laughs> thanks for having me. All right, bye. Bye.